This episode of the Case for Safety podcast is sponsored by DECRA. Welcome to the Case for Safety podcast. Our conversations with safety experts aim to share ideas and insights you can use to help your organization benefit from efforts to improve worker safety and health. I'm your host, Scott Fowler. Catastrophic incidents not only have a devastating impact on your workforce and your organization, they also have a detrimental effects on the surrounding community and the environment. Every business sector has risks and exposures making them susceptible to catastrophic incidents, And it is the responsibility of safety and health leaders to advocate for workers, first responders, and the public to protect them. Joining me today for a conversation about how your organization can anticipate catastrophic hazards and exposures through better decision-making and controls based on solid risk assessment practices and processes, I'm happy to welcome to the show Don Groover and Sarah Eck. Don is General Manager of Decker Consulting, where he works with senior executives and leadership teams to develop a deep understanding of the current state of the organization's approach to exposure, identification, and control. And uh, Sarah is Senior Process Safety Development Engineer at Decker Consulting and collaborates with site support personnel to integrate and improve management systems. Uh, Don, Sarah, welcome. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Scott, thank you. We really appreciate this opportunity. Now, as I was thinking about our conversation today, I was reminded of that old saying, hope for the best and prepare for the worst, because that's really going to be a big focus of our conversation today as we discuss how uh, organizations can anticipate and plan for catastrophic situations. So as we kick things off here, I thought we could focus in on one particular aspect of catastrophic incident reduction, and that is risk. Don, I know that uh, Decker talks extensively about risk management practices, and this is something that ASSP and safety and health professionals are very proactive on the the issue of risk assessment. So from a, from a philosophical level, do you see risk as part of an overall risk management program or is it a standalone process and procedure by itself? Scott, the the answer to that is yes and no. Uh, first, there there are some people that view risk assessment as their whole risk management process and we actually believe that that operational risk management or risk management is an umbrella of which hazard identification and risk assessment is one element. And so it is it is a standalone element, but it it needs to be within a more a, a broader and more holistic system. And that the system needs to to look at organizational capabilities. It needs to look at specific systems like incident response, asset integrity, accountability, operations. And then you can't forget culture and organizational climate and and how those influence uh, whether or not people elect to control risk. There's there's no doubt that hazard identification and risk assessment are crucial to a good risk management system. And if an organization doesn't know or understand their hazards, um, then the rest of the management system can be actually misdirected. So you got to know what hazards exist and you got to do a really good job of understanding how to control those hazards. Um, I think importantly in all of this is none of these elements can be viewed as one-off activities. This isn't something you do once and you're done. 
It's about the risk management process is evergreen and it has to be constantly evolving. Okay, now continuing on that topic of risk, uh, Sarah, when we talk about risk management and avoiding potential catastrophic events, what do you see as the best practices in regards to balancing the issue of compliance with applicable laws and compliance and higher levels of performance, such as with American national standards? Yeah, thanks for the question. Um, I think before we start to, to answer that question, we need to really unpack what do we mean when we say uh, compliance with laws versus compliance with standards? Because often when I'm working at work sites uh, with people trying to solve problems, uh, we need to kind of frame what we mean when we say catastrophic risk and what kind of rigor is involved in ensuring that, that we mitigate it. Just so that everybody is kind of right-sized in what we're talking about, a catastrophic risk are the kinds of things that, that are involve multiple fatality workplace events. It could mean impacting our communities. It could be injuring um, neighbors or the first responders that come to our aid. So we really have to remember the weight that our decisions have and how important that we, we keep hazardous exposures under control, okay? That means that when we make decisions, we have to make decisions with data. We have to uh, use experts that have the right science, engineering, and math necessary to help us uh, manage the risks. So when organizations uh, create industry consensus standards, and these are organizations like NFPA, API, ESME, and so many more, these aren't just best practices. These are often the fundamental requirements necessary to keep people safe. And it's not just our workers, but it's also the community. So when we talk about codes and standards, it's important, are we tell, talking about in the context of these are the principles that keep us safe or are they recommended and best practices? And I think that distinguish, it, it distinguishes really the difference between catastrophic risk management and perhaps some other kinds of risks that we look at. The second piece of your question was about the law. I think folks, uh, hopefully they understand that our local, state, and federal authorities don't want catastrophic incidents to occur in their communities. So they've usually set forth some bare minimum expectations that they expect us to follow in order to conduct responsible business. Um, sometimes these, these laws can be a little bit flawed. Maybe they don't quite fit the application of what we're trying to do, or maybe they aren't modernizing in time with other codes and standards. So sometimes we need to work with our local authorities to, to uh, work through some exemptions. But if we do that, it needs to be on the principles of science, engineering, and math, right? Not um, uh, other decision-making tools that we might decide to use. So uh, the key part of this is when you're looking at catastrophic risk management, we first stand on the foundation of math, science, and engineering. So when companies have achieved that, and they're then looking at maybe recommended or best practices beyond those fundamentals, you're looking at trying to make some risk-based decisions, engaging those experts that we talked about so that you can um, optimize uh, your risk reduction potential with the resources that you have. And most leading companies that we work with typically do this by first creating a comprehensive risk register. What that means is they've looked at their work sites and they've listed their risks that they have there, and they have a scoring or some kind of uh, risk criteria tool that they're using to really define which of these uh, risks are truly the most catastrophic. They could lead to multi-fatality um, events or they could lead to in, uh, impacting the community around them. And when they look at this collection of the highest hazards and risks that they have, they then furthermore go into some uh, risk scoring to figure out what are the top three or perhaps the top five that they have on that list. 
And then they assemble a, a team of experts around that list so that they can best manage their resources to get the best risk potential um, reduction that they want. Uh, lastly, it's important that uh, you, you go to your senior leaders and you, you report out the results of this activity. Uh, at DECRA, we've been impressed by the number of senior leaders that when they do receive these results, they they recognize, you know, maybe they want to spend more resources and further reducing the risk or perhaps make some difficult choices in uh, choosing an inherently safer option that perhaps the team thought wasn't possible. Uh, and that's an important part of the, the risk management process. Sarah, I, I'll add on to that. You know, my experience in with leaders that are only focused on complying with the law, um, that that's a whole different mindset than what we're talking about here. I mean, we're talking about uh, an evergreen process, continuous learning, and and the addition of new technologies and new methodologies to drive you know even lower and lower levels of risk. Leaders that I've run into that are really focused on the law um, are not in that category, and and I think you know, to be a true leader in this field, you've got to think way beyond the law. Uh, thank you both. That lays a uh, really, really great uh, groundwork and it leads really well into my next question. Now, catastrophic events can come in a variety of different forms and kind of taking a look at our current landscape, Don, what are your views on COVID-19 and pandemics in general? Do you think the COVID-19 pandemic could be viewed as a catastrophic event in the same way that we look at other exposures? And along with that, do you think traditional risk assessment practices can be used to address pandemic events like COVID-19? So, Scott, I see you're done throwing the softball questions, and now you came in with the hardball. Uh, it's really a great question. and. I want to say that COVID-19 uh, fits our definition with an absolute yes, but we do have to, to put in conditions around that answer. And I, think it, I, I don't think anyone would disagree that with over 2.7 million deaths worldwide, uh, over half a million uh, deaths in the United States alone, not to mention the untold suffering, it, it, if it'd be hard for someone to say, no, it's it's not a catastrophic event. With that said, every organization has a limit of control. And so I'm going to, I'll provide three different examples. There are a lot of uh, chemical plants right now that part of the assets have been sold to another company. In fact, you can have four different companies owning assets within that same structure, all relying on the, the, um, the power, the, the utilities within that organization. Within my sphere of control, I, I'm, I have to rely on those other three companies to do their job. Now, part of my risk management is, is making sure I stay connected with them. In some instances, it, it moves beyond that. And, and I'm relying on state government. And I think the, the recent uh, challenge that Texas had with keeping the electrical grid up is a great example of we could have and should have anticipated that as leaders, but we're relying on a state agency and the state government to help us in, in, in control. We, we couldn't control that ourselves. And then COVID is, a, is, a, you know, is an even bigger example where we need support and help at the national and even global level 
for us to be successful. So no one can argue that an event with worldwide impact, you know, should be put into a class of its own. And, and it would be unfair to it to, to think that any individual organization could overcome something so big. However, um, it is the fact that almost every, well, every organization we're dealing with has had to, to address COVID-19 in their workplace. And I'll just share, I'm, I'm kind of worried for some organizations that they have, they've put so much organizational attention on this one particular subject that they may be um, not following through on some of their other risk. The other thing that I've seen is that organizations with a healthy risk management program have have managed through this process better than those that are that are not so well positioned. And I mean, we saw organizations put in governance structures and decision making um, and, and make dramatic changes in their organizations very quickly. And I think that if you look at it, it's on the backbone of a very solid risk management program. So yes, I think COVID-19 clearly is a can be classified as a catastrophic event. We just have to think about the control that I have as a leader within my own organization or my own site. And, and am, I, am I focused on those things that I can control, but I'm, I'm keeping a wary eye on things that are outside my control and that could, be, could impact my location and my employees and my community. Uh, absolutely. A lot of really great points there. Now, uh, Sarah, I know uh, DECRA has worked with clients over many years that have experienced different kinds of catastrophic events. So in your experience, what are the three most common reasons these type of events occur? If you could share some, you know, kind of golden nuggets with us on what those are and on preventing these events, what would that be? Sure. And I guess this is where I'll tell the audience, you know, we're welcome to, to, to have a conversation and have some opinions around this because it certainly is within the context of our experiences that, that we're offering this advice. Um, you know, Docker works with a lot of different companies and different lots of technologies. Uh, anything from a chemical plant that has the potential to release a hazardous material out into the environment to uh, perhaps a, a company that's managing uh, trains, you know, they could, that can derail or, or, or structures that could collapse. Um, you really got to kind of think of all the technologies involved that, that could result in some kind of catastrophe. But there's a, probably, uh, you're right, a few uh, collection of these that are, that are common that you'll see regardless to, of the technology in some of these organizations. If we walk into a workplace or into an organization um, and you just see that there's a gap in their culture and, and that they just won't listen or accept that, that it can happen here, uh, you know that that organization is likely to be headed to some kind of disaster. And what this might look like is employees or workers uh, may be trying to report some, some problems or they might be watching some of the early warning signs of, of the start of, of, of a catastrophe. Yet when they mention it to their frontline supervision or to their management, they're told that, you know, we really don't have time to chase this down. Thanks for your advice, but we really need solutions and not problems. And you'll just start to see a reporting environment that's not open and free. And a lot of these issues uh, aren't being addressed early on when they could be managed in probably a more nimble and, and easy way. 
And uh, you'll see that just organizationally, suddenly it'll feel like this, this catastrophe came out of nowhere, where in fact, everyone close to the hazard had a pretty good idea that, that it was possible and that it could happen. So the, the best way to really combat that, that breakdown in culture is to really create that free and open reporting environment, to listen to early warning signals, and make sure that you have key roles in place to look at some of your reporting data, incident and near-miss reporting data, so that you can identify uh, what organizational or management system concerns you have and fix them early on. Uh, the second thing that, that, that we see in many companies that, that experience catastrophe are those that are just risk blind. Um, they're not aware of a certain kind of hazard, either because they have personnel who have the knowledge and the expertise leave the organization, or perhaps uh, they've introduced a change and they're just unaware of the hazard or risk. Um, a great example that I ran into several times in the last year were companies that brought in a bulk amount of uh, hydrogen peroxide, which is, which is an oxidizer. They didn't know much about chemicals. They, they weren't really used to handling them. And you would find these drums of hydrogen peroxide sitting in, in an area where there were next to materials that um, could start a fire. Okay, And they were having a, they had administrative practices that lended themselves to um, they could have possibly had a fire or a chemical event. As soon as I pointed these concerns out to people and provided them with materials, that they immediately responded and fixed the problem. You know, they were eager to address the hazard. They were just a little bit risk blind to what it was. Perhaps the best way to combat that is to, uh, you know, have a fresh eyes ass assessment from time to time. Uh, make sure that you have people walking through your facilities, kind of getting what Don just said. You know, I know there's been a lot of focus on COVID-19. But the kind of the counteractive to that is a lot of folks aren't getting around uh, and walking around their work sites. They're not looking at, at the hazards that might be right in front of their faces. So get out in the field, take a look at it. If you're not sure if you have the right expertise, it's a great time to, to pull some fresh eyes in, you know, get someone with the right expertise to take a look at your work sites. I think it does too, you know, organizational uh, culture and uh, the idea of risk blindness. I think the third that I would offer is um, organizations, if you if you walk down into their organization and you see that over a period of time, they are making a series of compromises. And usually this is under a stressful business environment or uh, perhaps they, they're experiencing a great amount of growth. Um, you see leaders making decisions, uh, incremental, incrementally getting them to a, a more um, riskier situation <laughs> than they would have otherwise done in a single decision. And, and what happens is the organization starts to drift towards from being safe to unsafe, and they don't even realize it. Um, a great example of this is the Challenger disaster. Um, for those that, that know a bit about when the Challenger exploded, it wasn't just one decision that, that brought on the explosion. There was a number of decisions made by, uh, over a period of time, and it, suddenly the organization found themselves in a space where um, the last decision led to the explosion. And I think that that one's a little bit trickier to combat. Um, I, I think it's easy for us to recognize that the decision we're making at the time seems very small, but these collection of decisions can really put us in a different uh, space. So the, the best way to really get at that is to make sure that you have a strong governance process within your company and within your organization where certain kinds of decisions, if they're going to bump up against a barrier, like a safe operating limit, let's say bypassing a safety system or choosing not to fund a maintenance system, for example, there's certain levels in the organization that just aren't allowed to make those decisions. 
you know, you have to escalate it maybe to the next layer or to a senior leader who then gets to evaluate the situation and call in um, professional expertise, you know, engineer, scientists, whoever is needed to give them the data and the recommendations so that they can make that difficult choice. That way you're not putting people in, in spaces that where they are, are making these incremental decisions and then unknowingly uh, kind of guiding the company down the wrong path. Very well said. I really like your point that there's so many different decisions that go into the development of a safety and health management system. And you have to think about all those things to you know, prevent these types of incidents from occurring. And I'm glad you mentioned systems because that leads really well into my next question. Uh, Don, give us your thoughts on the growth of system standards in recent years. We've had standards for safety, quality, environmental management, and others, and ASSP has seen significant growth in our management system standards, such as ANSI ASSP Z10 and the ISO 45001 standard. So do you think these issues that we're talking about today can be addressed within the framework of these management systems? The quick answer for that is yes. Um, each of these systems uh, provide an, a very good framework that allow an organization to effectively manage hazards and, and exposures, and not just the not just catastrophic or rare events, but also the the more high frequency uh, incidents that are occurring in their their organization. They all follow a similar model, uh, Plan Do Check Act, and that's a very good framework. To for developing a holistic approach. The value that I think that these standards have is they allow us to communicate with executives and others in a much cleaner way about what we're trying to accomplish. And, and so it's easier to gain buy-in and leadership engagement if they, if they understand that there's a process, that, that there's a framework that's being followed. Now, I think we all know this, that the proof's in the pudding. I've seen a lot of organizations with some really beautiful paperwork, uh, but when you, but you look at what's actually going on in the organization, they, they really haven't implemented the standard. And so it's, it's, the standard is one thing. It's the implementation and, and the focus that the organization has on sustaining the, the, the standards that they have in place. Um, my, my personal experience has been, and, and I've seen this just recently with a, an organization where the safety department brought in 45,001. They, they threw out their old safety management system. They reinstalled this system and everything was being pushed out by the safety department. And, and ex- the executives were aware of it but they weren't sponsoring it. And, and so it really didn't go very far. It, it, again, it looked good on paper, but because they didn't have executive sponsorship, they didn't have an effective implementation plan that was signed off by leadership. It ended up just being that. It ended up being a framework uh, that, was, that was well understood in the safety group, not well understood in, in operations. Uh, I think what you just said there was r- right on. Um, a lot of what I do is, is visit work sites and kind of provide that implementation check um, for a lot of companies. And I can't tell you how many times I've walked into a situation where the paper was gorgeous, but but when you actually walked out into the field, something else was going on entirely. 
And without that, that management and leadership support, it is very difficult to really influence change. So uh, again, can't stress enough, even with, with everything going on with COVID-19, it is just so important that people go out into the field, take a look at what people are doing, talk to them, and see what, what they're experiencing day from today, because it could be that you've got a system that isn't implemented well, or, or maybe people just don't understand the requirements. And Sarah, just to build on that just a moment, I think it's very appropriate for the safety professionals to identify the framework that they want to bring into the organization. What is missing from a lot of these organizations is is a governance structure. And what my you know, my experience, I think, same as yours, Sarah, is that when you really look at governance, that the organization doesn't actually have governance. They have people that meet and talk about things but they're not really governing. And that's if, if I'm starting the implementation of any new system or framework, that's got to be my first step is what is the governance structure that owns this particular standard uh, that we're going to implement? Okay. Now, uh, Sarah, something you touched on a little bit earlier was uh, all the different people involved in the decision-making process. And one of the main issues we see is getting the whole organization involved in taking ownership for planning and addressing these type of events. The, you know, the thought that it would happen to us, it could happen to us. So what techniques do you see being successfully used to address these kind of perceptions and what can be done to get senior leadership involved in the process if they're not currently? That's a great question. And, and I think you could probably have a podcast just on that question alone. Um, I, I'll offer some of my ideas, and I just just let the audience know it's certainly worthwhile uh, starting a conversation to add, add yours as well. Um, there's several techniques you can try. This is what has worked for me, okay, and, and what I've seen work for some many of my peers is uh, when you're working uh, with with an, a work, a job site or even a, a group of leaders. And you share a safety moment. Don't just tell a story and then ask the question, well, guys, can this happen here? Because it just infers that everyone wants to, to fall back on the, well, we're a good company, we're a good team, we're a good work site. Of course, we're doing things so, to prevent that terrible thing from happening. You know, that terrible thing happened, that just happened in that case study was because that was a, a bad company, a bad person, a bad machine, or, or whatever might have been involved. The special ingredient that you want to add in the mix is stop saying, can it happen here, but spin it around and say, how can this happen here? And then let people struggle through that question. Um, at first, it's a little awkward the first time you do it. But what happens is a special uh, a magic occurs where people start to problem solve. And by problem solving, they start to take ownership of the problem because they figure out how something similar can happen just like that case study, and they can even tell you how it's done. And suddenly you'll start a brainstorming activity and maybe even a, a list of, of items that you want to check up on to address that, that particular case study or that particular issue. And so that's the start of a journey where you can start to transform your safety moments and even transform your, your um, training exercises to really get people to start to take ownership over some of those issues. A second technique I would use is before you go to a job or project, um, you know, ask critical questions before you start the job about what can go wrong and have people brainstorm there as well. Again, they're taking ownership of how do I solve this problem that you presented me 
And we're agreeing as a team what that plan looks like. And sometimes the plan is I'm going to stop the work and escalate. And we start to take ownership of some of these issues. You know, instead of taking a shortcut or deciding to bypass a safety system, I'm going to take a time out and we're going to look out for each other and call in for some help. And what that does is it, it lowers the stress levels of, of everyone on the team if that situation does occur. And it gives that team a little bit more resilience so that they can adapt if, if the situation changes. Probably the third thing I would mention ties into your last part of the question, which is senior leadership. Um, you absolutely have to engage your senior leadership if you want a culture where you're vulnerable to the idea that it can happen here. If your senior leaders aren't convinced and aren't promoting that kind of culture, it's, it's going to be an uphill battle. So uh, when you start to look at senior leadership and, and uh, there's a lot of factors involved, I think it's important that if you're a safety professional listening to the podcast, that you understand that your senior leaders are typically not safety professionals. OK, they, they don't have the same skills as you. They don't have the knowledge, the experience or even, quite frankly, the time to thoroughly understand the hazards and risks that, that you're trying to communicate to them. So we need to back up a little bit and consider how are we packaging this message so that they can understand the context of the problem, how it fits in the big picture, and, and, and how it impacts the company so that uh, they can best decide how, many, uh, how they're going to uh, react or how they're going to uh, support um, the kind of culture that you're seeking uh, while you're engaging them. You also need to, to think about um, don't just do a one and done, you know, go to a senior leader and say, I need you to do this. But you have to give them continuous messages that are um, consistent and you need to educate them. So you might suggest um, some safety moments for them <laughs> and say, you know, here's, a, here's an, an event that has happened at, in another a competitor's uh, site or maybe uh, with an industry. This is how it not only impacted the workers there, but how it impacted their neighbors, the community how it impacted um, the brand, the brand of the company, um, because sometimes that context is extraordinarily important to help senior leaders really um, understand the weight of some of the decisions that they're making. You also want to, to educate them uh, about what is going on within your company uh, and the work sites. I want to kind of go back to that risk register that we talked about earlier here in the, the podcast. You know, you've got this list of hazards and risks. Don't go to a senior leader with 100 of them. Pick those three, those five, and educate them about where these high hazards and risks are located, um, what systems we have in play to mitigate them, and look for those moments so that when the senior leaders are visiting these job sites or perhaps talking to, to, to some of their managers, that they have the right information they need to ask critical questions to kind of test and explore if, if these hazards and risks are being managed. Um, at DECRA, we have had several stories where once senior leaders understood these catastrophic risks, they were incredibly engaged in the work process and they were asking good critical questions to make these sure that these hazards and risks were being managed. Uh, lastly, I, I think just kind of to end, end with that thought is you, your aim here is to coach your, your leaders to understand that we need to shift the behavior of the company from saying, Prove to me that this situation is unsafe, which is often the default mode, of, especially of, of many people um, working with the hazard, to shifting towards an approach where we say, show me how this is safe. You know, I need to prove that the decisions that I am making are based on this engineering and science that is so important to, to, to manage this risk. And when you achieve that, I think you're in a very good spot. You know that you're doing a, 
the right things and that you're really trying to, uh, to get your senior leaders and board and shift the culture. You know, Sarah, as you were talking about that, I was reflecting, Scott, on um, how you opened this, which was hope for the best, plan, prepare for the worst. And I'm really wondering if we we shouldn't think about that differently. And in fact, I think that's what we've been talking about. We need to plan for the best, not hope for the best. And I absolutely agree. We have to prepare for the worst. We have to have resiliency in our organization. But yeah, I, I'm not sure I want to hope for the best. Uh, I want to plan for the best. Very well said. That's that's a that's a great point. Uh, well, uh, anything uh, anything else that you'd like to uh, add here as we as we close out? No, I just want to thank you for giving us the opportunity to, to you know, share some of our experiences, and and we hope people find this of value. Oh, thanks. And and for anyone who wants to continue the conversation, I think it's it, it's, a, it's a good thing to do. And, and just remember that you know we all have experience to share in this space, and let's work together to share safety and manage risk. Absolutely. I think that's a great note to end on. Well, uh, thank you both so much again for coming on and sharing your insights. Uh, this has been really valuable for me, and I think it'll provide a lot of value to our listeners as they uh, think about how they can prevent catastrophic incidents in their workplaces. So thank you again. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Case for Safety podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can also connect with us at ASSP.org and follow us on Twitter at ASSP Safety. We'll see you next time.